Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. If you'd like to follow along with me as I read, it's on page 6 of your bulletin. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. also like to invite you to a special occasion uh, tomorrow, it being uh, a holiday, federal holiday, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, we annually gather together to read the letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, one of the most important works that Dr. King wrote, and I believe an essential work, must read reading, required reading for all Christians wanting to grow in gospel discipleship. Um, What's unique about it, of course, is that he was writing to the church. He was writing to Christians, those who were opposing his work of justice. And so it gives a lot of very helpful biblical perspective on how Christians ought to view not only race in particular, but justice in general. And so please come out to my place. If you don't know where I live, um, uh, reach out to the church. Joanna Giddens, um, our community life coordinator, can give you uh, directions. But that's tomorrow evening at 8 o'clock. would love to see you there. And if you've never read it, of course, come. And even if you have read the letter from a Birmingham jail, or maybe you've come to this event in past years, come again. We would love for you to do it again and to be refreshed again and again and again. It's something I love doing every single year. So join us for that reading. Let's pause now and let's pray as we take a look at this passage. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you in particular for this word on this weekend. We pray your blessing upon this time, the next few minutes that we have together. We pray that you would send your spirit with power. We pray that you would speak truth and love to our hearts. We pray that you would bind our hearts not only to you, but also to one another. And we pray that you would uh, teach us to love and to be a church of love 
and to love like you. And so we're asking for you to do some real work of transformation. Uh, If you do that, we'll give you all the credit and all the glory as you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you almost see it? You heard the reading. Could you almost see it with your very eyes? A great multitude that no one could count. The kind of crowd that you might find at a concert or a sporting event or a New Year's celebration, only unimaginably bigger than even that. The ocean of people disappears over the horizon as far as the eyes can see. But the people aren't in a stadium or in the streets. They're in a palace. At least that's where you might find a throne a palace of unmatched majesty and breathtaking beauty, adorned with the most precious of gems and jewels, surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angelic creatures, enveloped in flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. So great is the glory of God. This is a vision of heaven you see. And if you were there, you might have been stunned into silence. But don't get me wrong, there's nothing at all quiet about this scene. This crowd is loud. They're a throng of worship, of joyful shouts and thunderous song. Salvation belongs to our God, they sing, standing Before the throne of the Lamb of God, whose name is Jesus. The crowd is a choir, you see. They're all wearing white robes, a picture of perfection and purity. And they're all holding palm branches in their hands, a symbol of victory. And just when you start to think that they're all same, you peer out and you notice their faces. Their brown and peach and olive hues. And their hair, too. Their braids and their bobs and their buns. Their dreads. And it's then that you realize that all along you'd been hearing their song in every language you'd ever heard, and even more in languages you'd never heard, filling Christ's throne with the heavenly vibes of people from every nation, language, people, and tribe. This is the Apostle John's vision of the multi-ethnic multitude in heaven. Captured here in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation that gives us a unique perspective on what's going on even now and in the future in the home of God. And it's a vision worth reflecting on, particularly For a church like ours, whose mission includes a commitment to build what we call a a cross-cultural 
community, intentionally, sacrificially, and also particularly this weekend, worth remembering this vision as our nation remembers the life and the legacy of Dr. King, after all, his fight for racial justice and unity, not only for American society, but also for the Christian church, was rooted in passages from the Bible, such as this one here today. And so what can we learn from our text of Scripture this morning? I'd like to make four observations for you. Look at four things together with you, starting right away with this. Number one, ethnicity is for eternity. Ethnicity is for eternity. Well, guess what, everyone? You are ethnic. Every single one of us. And typically, we use that word only in reference to minority cultures, don't we? So we speak of ethnic restaurants and ethnic people as opposed to, you know, the regular kind. I don't know, right? And yet, the Bible affirms that every single one of us, every single one of you radiates the face, the very image of God in some unique way. The hue of your skin, the texture of your hair, the size of your Eyes, the shape of your cheekbone, the accent of your words, the food in your fridge, the music in your heart. We are all commonly human and differently ethnic, wonderfully, according to God's design. And one of the astonishing lessons of this passage is that our ethnicity actually carries over into eternity, into the very life of heaven. Your blackness is not erased in heaven. The Francais on your lips will be forever. See, right from the start in verse 9, John writes, After I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Four different words are used here to, to, to describe ethnic distinctions. Tribe, people, language, and nation, which comes from this Greek word ethnos, which basically means ethnic group. See, the multitude here is even in heaven, beyond life here on earth, identifiable as an ethnically mixed crowd. A moment ago, I described this as astonishing because I sincerely believe we either forget this or maybe don't completely believe this. Why? I think maybe because racial strife and conflict has become just such a, a familiar part of our human existence that I think many of us, many Christians even, just subconsciously believe that there's something inherently wrong 
with ethnicity, as if that in and of itself is what creates conflict. And I think that many Christians may imagine that the way that God is going to get rid of ethnic pain or division is by one day when he perfects all things that he would also at the same time get rid of ethnicity itself. And yet the Bible tells us in this passage here quite the opposite. That God actually made us, made you good. In fact, very good. And he's not going to throw away the radiant image that he's made you. The mirror of his glory that he's made you. Your face. The cultures you represent. The families from which you have arisen. And all your magnificence and created wonder. He's not going to throw it all in fact. Throw it away at all in fact. He's only going to enhance it and perfect it forever. And if ethnicity is for eternity, then that means a few things for us practically. First, we welcome you. We eagerly welcome you. Whether if you are Syrian or Belgian or Egyptian or Appalachian, Filipino or Eritrean, Pennsylvanian, Korean, Kenyan, Guatemalan, or someone of German or Indonesian or Chinese or Cherokee descent, or perhaps some unidentified, I'm not sure what my background is, glorious mix of some or many of these, you are welcomed here as a piece of God's glory. And secondly, therefore, we not only welcome you, but we want to say we see you. We do not say here that we don't see color. We don't say that we strive to be colorblind, simply put. Because God's not. Not here on earth, nor will he ever be in heaven. Your ethnicity is not erased in heaven, neither then should we attempt to erase it here on earth. We see you. In fact, we celebrate you. Which is why we intend to, for example, celebrate black history and heritage next month as a church. Why we celebrate Hispanic heritage in the months of September in October, where we see not only value in you, but rather we see value in the God reflected in you, worthy of being noted, even celebrated in Christian community together. We welcome you, we see and celebrate you, but thirdly, therefore, we want to make room for you. Because if ethnicity is for eternity, if it's that significant to God, if it's not a negative, but rather a positive force to the glory of God, then it's our job 
to not only welcome you and celebrate you, but rather to forge a solidarity with you together without asking you to shed your ethnic identity at the door. To invite you warmly to come on in and add to the mix without subtracting yourself. In other words, what a passage like this calls us to is not a dynamic of assimilation, uh, where you have a culture that might represent the majority of people, but anyone else that comes on in, well, you need to let go of yourself or your preferences, your taste, your identity, your culture, leave them at the door and just blend yourself on in. Not assimilation, but rather something that calls each of us to sacrificial love, to give room for unique expressions for each of us and the peoples that we represent. It means that we, out of love, make room by making ourselves a little bit more uncomfortable for the comfort of another person coming in. It means not living in Christian community, demanding that everything is just instinctive to me, but rather understanding that it would always be a little bit of work to live in multicultural solidarity. To know that I'm called to follow the path of Jesus who died on a cross for our life in order to love us. I'm called to be like him, which means giving up a little bit of comfort. To assume even Losing the spotlight for a moment or more. For the sake of someone else being lifted up and drawn in. Because if we don't do this, friends, you must understand that it is possible to be multi-ethnic in terms of people count. How many different kinds of backgrounds do we have represented in a community? It's possible to be multi-ethnic while at the same time only being monocultural. Where the church is governed and reigns by one culture's norms and standards and habits and practices without actually creating space for other people to express themselves. I think Tony Evans, the well-known preacher and author, puts it well when he writes this. I'll quote him extensively. Unity is not uniformity, nor is it sameness. Just as the Godhead is made up of three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each unique in personhood and yet at the same time one in essence, unity reflects a oneness that does not negate individuality. God's creative variety is replete with displaying itself through a humanity crafted in different shapes, colors, and style. Unity occurs when we combine our unique differences together as we head toward a common goal. It is the sense that the thing that we're gathered for and moving toward is bigger than our own individual preferences. So what might it look like for you to be a part of something bigger than just your own personal, individual preferences, culturally speaking, personality-wise, or otherwise? What can it mean for us to actually invite people into the mix without maybe even accidentally requiring for your brother, your sister, your neighbor to downplay who they are 
if their identity might be less represented in our midst? What would it look like for us to labor to make room? I encourage you to ponder this, to labor for this, to deliberately build relationships like this, because ethnicity is for eternity. Number two, the Number two, praise is the point. Second observation, praise is the point. You might notice that the overwhelming theme of this passage is the note of worship. Line after line and element after element of this vision is a Portrait and picture of God's redeemed people singing the praises of Christ, the Lamb of God, for all of eternity. In verse 9, the multitude is standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We're told in verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The angels and the four living creatures, we're told in verse 11, fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever Amen. What is the point of this gathering of this multi-ethnic multitude of, of people? Why are they there? They're there to worship the Lamb who has brought them together. They're there to sing His praises. They're there to honor Him for who He is. You see, it's a reminder here that this multi-ethnic multitude is not an end in themselves. Even in a Christian community like ours, laboring to pursue a vision like this needs to understand that diversity is not an end in and of itself. Rather, it exists in service to this higher purpose and calling to give God glory. And you say, well, exactly how does it do that? Well, in community, what it means is we don't minimize our differences just for the sake of peace or false peace, downplaying our differences. Neither do we maximize our differences for the sake of provocation, just to highlight how different we are. Rather, we're called to celebrate our differences for the sake of praise. The praise of the God whose beauty and radiance is not only reflected in our different faces and peoples, but a God whose radiance and majesty is so great that it cannot be contained in the worship of only one kind of people. That it must be given expression to a multitude of kinds of people singing different kinds of songs through the mouths and languages of different cultures, because that's how great God is. And of course, earlier in Revelation 5, we're told that in this heavenly gathering, the people and the angels together are singing to Jesus, you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This multitude 
was one of the explicit purposes for which Christ died. Which is another way of saying that when we gather together as a mix of people, we are honoring Jesus and his suffering on the cross. And we're bringing to him the praise that is the reward of his death. To look around at our differences and our stories and identities and to say to God, this is what you sent the lamb to die for. And to say to Jesus, this is what, this mix of people is what you shed your blood for. And it's your uncontainable glory that we will strive to manifest with this mix of people and will strive to bring in even more in order to give shape and contour and dimension to every part of your manifold glory because you deserve it. You see, what propels us to want to gather together and to even seek out different kinds of people is not ultimately just for ourselves, But it's for the one who deserves all praise for all of eternity. And so you come together in a room like this each Sunday and you look around. It's right for you to say, oh, I long for there to be this other group of of people. Uh, This this portion of the Congolese community that I've heard might live down the street from us. We would love to see this brother or sister in our mix so that we might see more of the glory of Christ. Or we look around in the small groups that we might be a part of, a neighborhood group or a a praying triad perhaps or mom's group, and you begin to say to each other, we would love to see more of a mix. Not because we despise the people that already are in the room, but because we want to see more of Christ. And not because we don't want people there, but because we want more of Jesus there. And the radiance of the beauty of God there. And we can long for that in our neighborhood and in our city where we want to see more portraits and and icons of the glory of God presented and represented in our mix. Because praise is the point. And this passage teaches us that when we're gathered with such a mix, we give God great, great praise. The ultimate goal of this multicolored heavenly gathering is worship. Praise is the point, and you know it's also the secret power to being in a mix like this. What I mean is this. Again, the idea is not simply to coexist in a space just in order to meet some artificial quotas or something superficial like that. The goal is to be in an intimate fellowship and community, family-like relationships with one another, isn't it? And that's only possible with such differences in our mix if we have the grace and the love of Christ himself actively working in our hearts 
day by day, conversation by conversation, conflict by conflict. And this is exactly what Jesus offers us. And we see that here also in this passage. We're told that the redeemed people are wearing white robes in verse 9. It's a symbol of purity, perfection, holiness, and righteousness. How did they get that way? Well, the moral stain of their sin, we're told, has been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. The guilt of their sin has been forgiven, has been blotted out completely. Dear friends, we cannot be in reconciled community without power to forgive one another. Forgive one another of personal wrongs, to forgive one another of historic wrongs committed between communities that we represent. We're also told that this multitude is holding palm branches in their hands. It's a symbol of of victory. These are people that have come out of a great tribulation, we're told in verse 14. They've loved Christ and the gospel so much that they've endured much struggle and suffering for the sake of Jesus. This is a story of everyone who walks faithfully for the sake of Christ in this life. All kinds of suffering and struggle that have been overcome by the power of Jesus. And now they hold these palm branches of victory. What a word of hope that one day every struggle and strife of every variety, but including interracial conflict and interethnic awkwardness and wounds and pain, that one day, someday, we will overcome it all. Don't we need that hope in order to press on forward day by day and with each challenging relationship and with each new call to love? It's only when we actually see Christ for who he is, when we exalt him for his mercy, that we find an outpouring of mercy within our own hearts for those who might wrong us racially. It's only when we actually see the kindness of Christ for us personally, washing us clean that we don't deserve it, that we actually are moved to repent of our sins. Christ has loved me so, how can I not be so honest about the ways that I have not esteemed you, brother, sister, of a different ethnic background? It's only when we're saved by grace that we are finally freed of our superiority complexes, judging other people for living life and doing things differently than us. Saved by grace, which reminds us that we stand not only on level ground, but low ground, humbled, knowing that Christ has saved us not because we did the right thing, nor because we were the right color, but simply because of his compassion, his love, his cross. Worship is the power, the worship of the Lamb. Worship, praise is the point. And then we move on to our third observation, number three. We stand on level ground. We're told in verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And you may not know, it's easy to miss that this is biblical language for the work of priests. Heaven here is described as a, as a temple. That's a place where God and humanity meet intimately. 
And in the Old Testament, priests were the ones who serve in the temple as leaders of worship and prayer. And so what's the big deal then? Why, why, what's the significance of using that kind of language here? Well, listen, John is telling us that all of God's people now in heaven will serve as priests. In Revelation 5, this is stated even more explicitly about God's people. They sing, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And this means Two amazing things. First, that people of every tribe, language, and ethnicity who have embraced Jesus and put their faith in him, his cross and resurrection, have an exalted status in Christ. That you have dignity. That you are treated even as royalty in heaven. There's no second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, it also means that as priests, every single person of every tribe, language, people, and ethnicity also have unrestricted access to the throne of Jesus. And you say, what's the big deal? Well, you have to remember in the time of Jesus, the temple in which God's people worshiped at that time actually had layers of entry. Uh, there was a, a, a rule, a law, and even a physical barrier that kept you out if you were of the wrong ethnicity. If you were a Gentile, you were only allowed to enter the outer courts here in heaven because of the mercy of Christ. What do we find? Everyone is strolling in and out to the very inner recesses, inner recesses of the temple of God now called heaven. No one is restricted. Everyone is brought near to God. Everyone has access. Everyone has status. Everyone is one people before God. In heaven before the Lamb, before his throne, everyone stands on level ground. And you see, we already said this earlier, that it's possible to have a mixed multitude, even in this room, where people don't, in fact, stand on level ground. If some people are treated as inferior or scorned as having a musical taste that's not worthy of being included in the canon of Grace Meridian Hill, or of foods that they prefer that we find to be not of the proper taste or kind to be included in the buffet table of this church, or of other cultural expressions, whether related to timeliness of, or of ways of expressing emotion, where you're not given the freedom to, to worship or to rejoice as you feel in your heart because, hey, that's not allowed here or that's not appropriate here. Because every person in the kingdom of heaven is a priest and therefore should be treated as having equal dignity and honor in the church. You see, the goal of multi-ethnic heavenly community isn't simply harmony, it's equity. It's not just a matter of being together while preserving norms and patterns that treat some people as more important and others as less important. 
It's about making sure that we reflect what will be true one day, perfectly and fully in heaven, and that's all of us standing on level ground. So as a church, will we work hard in love and humility to create a special welcome for those for whom life in the church has not felt like level ground, where it's felt like they've had to climb uphill, up a steep hill, just to get into the fellowship of God's people. Whether if it's through historic restrictions of the church's pews, or if it's in unstated norms that just make it less comfortable for a person to feel like they're part of the family. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 puts it plainly that God has put the body together calling us to give greater honor to the parts that have lacked it. And so that means that it's right for us to actually extend ourselves with a special welcome, with uh, more efforts of hospitality towards those whom in the city and in the church have historically felt unwelcome. In the church, we offer special care to brothers and sisters and neighbors who might represent historically marginalized groups in our neighborhood, in our city, which is why we do have a a, a special care that we extend in the direction of African-American neighbors and Latino neighbors here in this local community. Because of ways in which they, you, have been pushed out, diminished, and marginalized in this city, and all too often, to our shame, in Christ's church. What can it look like for the church to be a place of refuge, of safety, of mutual care, where we say to one another that even if the world strips you of dignity because of your ethnicity, here we will treat you as royalty. And to live that out with deep humility, understanding that so often the transformation of society that we all long for, it starts even within these walls. In the church, Uh, you see, because here in the family of God, we get a chance to practice what we're called to live out in the workplace and on your street blocks and in the challenges that you face day to day. It's partly why Dr. King said in the letter from a Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere because we're that tightly knit and connected as a human community, he was saying that even injustice in Birmingham, Alabama has the potential to spread and to become a cancer or a norm in American society. And in the same sort of way, even inequity in the life of the church becomes a norm too often that we simply live out of in broader society, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. If we can dare to try to get it right out there. Well, friends, it's got to start here, in this house, in this family, where we labor for this kind of equity, establishing this kind of level ground here, and also from here then everywhere. As we love our neighbors, as we correct injustice, as we care for those who are downtrodden, as we welcome those who have not found a hospitality 
of Christ. And so we move on to number four. Finally and lastly, pain must be named. Ethnicities for eternity. Praise is the point. We stand on level ground. And finally, pain must be named. The whole vision closes with almost a song again. A series of quotations of scripture from the prophet Isaiah. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is a heavenly healing that is promised to those who suffer. The hungry are full. The thirsty are quenched. The vulnerable finally have in Jesus a shepherd and God wipes away every tear from their eyes. That includes all kinds of human suffering, of course. What's, what's paining your heart today? God knows. God heals. This includes every kind of pain, but it includes also, of course, Racial pain, the wounds that we bear because of conflict, one group to another. And we're reminded here that for all of its perfection, heaven is not actually a place that has forgotten the tears of people. We're looking at a vision where they're still talking about the tears of God's formerly now healed, wounded people. I was thinking about this last week as I pondered the cartoon classic, The Little Mermaid. My wife is going to make fun of me because of the frequency with which I seem to refer to The Little Mermaid. And you may know the story of Ariel, who was a mermaid longing to walk on land and relate to other human beings. And in one of the early songs, as she's sort of dreaming what life must be like on Land, she's singing, but she's fumbling through certain words like feet and burn. They're foreign to her because mermaids don't walk and there's no fire under the sea. Well, guess what? When the songs of heaven are sung, people don't trip over words like tears. Uh, People don't fumble over ideas like tears. Death and pain and loss and wounds and hunger and thirst and racism and marginalization and loneliness and fill in the blank. Heaven hasn't forgot it. Heaven has healed it, but it has not forgotten it. It has welcomed a kind of heavenly honesty that rises up in perpetual praise to God's glory. That even in heaven, we're able to talk about it and acknowledge those things from which we were healed. And so also as a church, we're invited to a similar kind of honesty where we can talk about our wounds. Where we can create a safe kind of community where it's not wrong. In fact, it's right for us to be able to say, just, you don't know how much I feel burdened by the way that I've been treated or the way that I feel people look at me or the way that my people or community have been downtrodden, whether recently or in the past. This too is how we become a healing community, 
where we create space where we can talk honestly about our worst wounds and our deepest pains, a place where pain can be named, where we invite one another to share stories, even with tears, to talk about what it feels like when immigrants are talked about like that, or to share what does it feel like to be hated by some just for being white, or just for being brown, or just for being from a different place. We ask one another, what does it feel to be like you? And we enter in with compassion and care and the solidarity of tears. And we do this again and again and again, and yet we do this not, with those, not as those who don't have hope, but rather we do it as those who are giving one another what you might call a foretaste of heaven. Uh, just a, a little bit of healing. Just a, a touch of grace. A, 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 just a, a gesture of love and understanding that gives people a little bit of a sense of what it's going to be like one day in glory. To give each other just enough hope to persevere for Another day. Persevere in becoming more and more a multi-ethnic multitude that overcomes all the hardships and evils and troubles of this life. Until that day when finally, never again, will you feel like an outsider in the company of God's people. And never, never again will you feel scorched by the heat of oppression. And never again will you feel doubled over in hunger and thirst for connection with someone like you. And never again will you shed a tear because of the ways that you've been wounded simply because of the backgrounds with which God in his wisdom and kindness has created you. Never again will we hurt and bleed and die like this again when Christ comes and makes this heavenly vision a reality. Do you long for this? I do. And until then, until that day, we will continue to pray and to live in accordance with this prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. So we're asking for your mercy, God. We need your strength, your equity, your unending compassion, your patience, your perseverance, your joy, your heart to worship the Lamb, Jesus, who was slain to bring us together before his throne. So do that in our midst, in our church, in our neighborhood, our city, and in our world. We desperately need you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.